And boom, we're back for another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winter, and I'm here as always with Dr. Bear Paul Lando. We took a week off, so we're back. I uh, with a little spring break action up at the mountains. Uh, had an amazing time snowboarding with the fam. And actually, it's funny, it was... Uh, like peak spring almost summer vibes and now we're back into winter full winter storm snow snow capped mountains uh uh and i will take it i was not ready yet for spring in some ways so uh it's great to have uh the waterfalls flowing up here the river is super happy uh and the organite is kicking because it's doing something right and uh the organ belt that we're creating from here all the way up to Montana is uh, vital and thriving and definitely was gifting some orgone uh, when I was in uh, Central Oregon uh, this weekend. So uh, it needs it badly. And I am, uh, as, as I keep telling you, Mike, I'm creating the largest um, organite cannon on record here. So, <laughs> so yeah. Bring on the black helicopters. Uh, today is going to be a super fun one. Uh, I cannot wait to get into this. A couple uh, just points of interest real quick. Want to remind everybody that Music and Sky, uh, our, our Memorial Day uh, get together down in uh, Central California is, uh, is happening. We have Eurosimos as the MC host, our good friend Eurosimos and Sophie, uh, who will be actually on AlphaCast uh, later this month or next month uh, to talk about human design and somatics and they are amazing we've got eric cassano there he's going to be doing holotropic breath work anna bliss is coming back tons of great uh, music uh ecstatic dj ecstatic dance djs uh this is going to be an adult focused retreat this is not the festival the festival will be in uh the fall equinox this is uh a more of a smaller networking retreat uh to go and uh, really replenish your chi and to have an adult experience uh as only we can provide that is a memorial day weekend check it out at musicandsky.com and then i will be down in san diego at the end of the month for liberty's horizon check that out um at alphabetic.com forward slash liberty horizon that's l i let's see if i spell it right bear l i b e r t i s horizon uh, so alphabetic.com forward slash liberties horizon and that is a symposium on living in the private michael Batrano is doing uh we have some friends and family that are going to be there bear that i'm excited to to meet in person um as we shift to the private guys we are shifting alpha vedic and everything to the private developing our pma and um that's really exciting and i know bear we've talked about doing an entire alpha cast on that process we've been going through for the last yeah, we want to yeah i, I want to do a whole podcast on the alchemy of the legal process and uh there's a whole lot to unpack there that i i don't hear people talking about too much uh, just a quick comment on your other gig. You know, you say it's going to be an adult experience to replenish your chi. It almost sounds like you're going to be depleting your chi, but that's just uh, something I read into it there. Um, oh, when we say adult experience, was, we're talking about. Yeah, I know. I know. But we're talking about breath work, ice baths, meditation. I, I get it. Yeah, get we're it. not. Um, we're not. Uh, that was I know. a lousy attempted humor there. Yeah, <laughs> I, know, I, I know. I liked it. I was getting the Kundalini vibes from there. Yeah, ground yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Somebody's following me here. So, uh, you know, uh, just on that note, too, yeah. uh, on a different note is that, you know, with our new site, our private server, um, we are going to be doing a lot of our private in-house content. We used to put occasionally up on 
douche tube that, uh, you know, we're now getting a timeout from again, right? So um, uh, we aren't going to do that anymore on any platform. Uh, we are going to save that for our private member content. We're going to be doing a lot more of it. So uh, just give a heads up to our, our peeps out there. We're going to have some cool stuff for members. Yeah, yeah. Already creating it. Uh, definitely. And I'm very excited about diving into that, uh, the alchemy of the law. I think that's one of the most important subjects of our time right now, as people are waking up to the public versus private, you know, legal versus lawful story. Uh, and this is going to tie in specifically into what we're discussing today. Um, maybe one of my most favorite topics. And I have, uh, I, I finally found the guest to bring on to really uh, deliver this content in an amazing way. Um, I, one more thing, I want to give a shout out to Owen Benjamin and the Bears. I got my magazine, uh, uh, Bear. I don't know if you know that they're putting out uh, Bertaria Times now. So I, they're actually oh, great. doing old school magazine, <laughs> which is very cool and giving me some great ideas for Alpha Vedic to put out our own. Uh, so uh, enjoying this and thanks y'all. Great community over there. Uh, a lot of sound solutions and some certainly a lot of logos up in this. So, so Mike, do you have a bear name, by the way? Uh, I'm going to be, um, I don't know, Funky DJ Bear. We'll figure it out. I haven't okay. been christened with a bear name from Owen yet. So uh, better getting on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm born bear. Maybe I'll be Funky Chicken. I don't know. Um, Can I be Berenstein? Ah, there, you you there we go. Berenstein, Berenstein, Berenstein. Uh, it's there. You, you know that's a Tartaria thing. We should we'll save it for a second. But I love uh, them. There's a there's a story behind that too. That's great because Good, we did a whole we did a whole Mandela show uh, about a month ago with Brian Stavely. And actually, speaking of Owen Benjamin, he chimed in on that one. Uh, so yeah, uh, this is all tying it. What I love about it is all our shows synchronistically are all, are all interweaving together now. It's really magical. So, um, awesome. I cannot wait to dive in more today. We've got the great, wonderful new friend, Andreas Exertus on, as we have so many questions, is there any truth to the Tartarian mythos? Did a civilization once exist that far exceeded the aspirations of present empire builders in both vastness and development? Would current science, engineering, and societal structuring feats pale in comparison? <clears throat> Are the architectural marvels of our modern era merely repurposed creations from bygone times lost through the mists of approved university curriculum? And what if this was all true? Uh, would it have any relevance to the world theater now playing out? Are we witnessing the final act of ancient bloodlines prominent in the post-Tartarian era vying for predominance in the New World Order? Is Tatar and Cossack history now playing out through the conflict in Ukraine? Is Putin intending to reestablish the Tartarian Empire based on his claim to <laughs> Kiev dynasty heritage? Andreas Exertus joins us today to help us demarcate ta tall tales from fact. He is a technologist from Silicon Valley, known from his appearances on Timcast Media and recent Tartarians, his enterprise to collect and share evidence surrounding the nearly forgotten civilization of T Tartaria. Andreas currently has a biopic airing about himself in his research on, of all things, Vice TV, the leftist propaganda wing of uh, the millennial class. 
Uh, Andreas is a former social media strategist for CNN, the Clinton News Network, and Turner Entertainment, and a former nanotechnician for the Never a Straight Answer, uh, NASA. He also has a uh, YouTube page that focuses on disclosure. Uh, Exertus, um, Andreas covers philosophy, news, futurism, esoterics, and hidden history, including Tartaria and a bunch of other subjects. Uh, I recently heard you on uh, Mark, our friend Mark's podcast, and you were tapping into like uh, Francis Bacon and some of our favorite topics going into, um, you know, real history that we supposedly are taught and then merging that into this more esoteric wisdom. And for me, that was very important because a lot of the Tartaria channels just cover the impossible architecture and look at photos. And I think that's important. But I think we often lose the context of how this can actually interplay with with like the Illumin, um, you know, people that we like, like Rudolf Steiner, Walter Russell, um, you know, going back into the beginning of the United States and um, traditions that go into, you know, uh, the European tradition of the Masonic lodges and all this stuff. How does this all interplay? And Andreas, you're so amazing of that at that at interweaving that. So. I'm so happy to have him on, Bear. And I know, Bear, this is a favorite topic of yours as well. Thank you yeah, guys for uh, Andreas. <laughs> Andreas, I was just going to say thank you. Thank you for making time with us today. I'm really looking forward to this one. You know, you're a man after our own hearts. And you're truly a renaissance man of uh, just everything that, you know, we're interested here on this channel. I had an interesting um, email from somebody last night. And uh, the question was, uh, okay, that's cool, but what does this have to do with anything? Why should I be interested in this? And she was just focusing in on Tartaria. Um, you know, I wrote up that, uh, what Mike just read there, I wrote that up last night. So I just kind of threw a, a bunch of questions out there off the top of my head. I hope it worked. Uh, you know, I, I look at it as what's going on now is we are decoding uh, you know, our history, uh, science, everything, because, you know, we have been brought into a complete fictional, uh, you know, non-reality. And, uh, you know, in my own field, I chose uh, the alchemy as my method of decoding. And I found that uh, because of what I was involved with, with medicine and agriculture, is I really needed to know how things work. And in the alchemical lab, what you do is you mimic nature's processes and you expedite them greatly. And then also in the process, you realize that there's no way you can be outside of the process yourself. So as you're ex expediting these natural processes, you're also doing the same internally within yourself. And it becomes a whole, you know, kind of a spiritual discovery process at the same time. And through that, I understood that, you know, this polarity consciousness that, you know, we, we tend to with modern day scientism, uh, you know, they're really missing the boat. And what I found, you know, I couldn't practice medicine or agriculture that way. 
And through alchemy, I understood that um, what we think of as materialism is actually congealed cosmic function. And so that's the way I look at things. And when I look at things that way, not only do solutions appear uh, with all the things I'm involved with, but things actually work. So going back full circle, sorry, it's long-winded, into the, uh, the lady that asked, you know, what good is this? Well, if you don't know your place in the universe, who you are, what your roots are, and the fact that you're not just a victim and that you need to obey and believe everything you're told, you're going to be in a pretty sorry state. So everything that you're involved with, not just Tartaria, but you bring a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of wisdom and knowledge to the table here. It has everything to do with everything. So that's why we do what we do here. Thanks so much for being with us. Now, I don't even know where to start. Um, do we start on Tartaria or, you know, you're, you've got a background, uh, you're, you know, about alchemy, all sorts of things. So how can we tie all this together today? Well, I guess let's start with answering your, your uh, friend or your, your fan's question on, on how it's relevant. Okay. Because the, to be honest, the reason why I started looking into it was because I was trying desperately to become not relevant. I mean, working at CNN and having covered Flight 370 and figuring out where Diego Garcia was, I'd seen too much. I started living in South America for a year. Um, I'd been around too much there. I'd seen Niesman commit suicide and or rather be suicided right before the Kirshner case. I'd been in Paraguay. Um, I'd been working for the Peruvian president who shot himself, the, uh, Alan Garcia. And so, so much of my life had been so real, you know, seeing people die in Venezuela because of information that was not properly redacted, that I'd become scared of news. And I'd already worked, you know, I'd, I'd started out thinking, let's reveal, let's disclose, let's show all kinds of things. But the news was getting people killed because of the situation you're talking about, where news is controlled by well, there's the, there's this idea of an, an, an elite that have a goal and they're working together and they're they're controlling the, the, the media optics of every situation. But because of the conf, uh, conflicts going on internationally, so many people were being hurt in the last 20 years has been this kind of secret war that no one's been talking about. And it, we've known about it if we're in school. You know, some people have mentioned the Club of Rome's computer program before I heard about it maybe 20 years earlier, but it's become more and more relevant as it impacts your life directly. People said all of a sudden, wait, why is my gasoline expensive or my grain price going up? And then they say, oh, well, there's this country on the other side of the world and it's interacting with you. We've started to normalize acceptance of, of the international relations, but because history is just recordings of fake news, when you go back and you start looking at your fake news to, to dismantle it, and that's something I felt like it was very important for me to do is to say, hey, I understand now as a professional working for CNN, how news is created. I can go back and I can look at this and maybe if it's 100 years old, I won't get killed for it. So looking at news from 150 years earlier, you start to realize, wow, every single one of the families that and were involved um, then in control of the news or in control today. And the things they're talking about in 1811, 1812 about resets start to reappear now that they're saying there were these um, periods of resets. And you go back further, 
their education going to the 17th century foundlings and then their education being duplexed of books, codices from the um, Cotton Library or the London Library, which is the 1600s. So you have De Vere. We, I did a video on my channel recently about Shakespeare with Alexander War, where we revealed that De Vere at, at the Earl of Oxford was essentially in charge of this Mockingbird Tavistock um, optics, again, optics program by the government, by the British government to make Shakespeare. And Shakespeare is not just an interesting thing. It's a phenomenon where they replace the original language, where we've gotten rid of the way people used to speak and created 500 new words, um, taking ideas from the Gauls and the Latins and the Greeks and combining them into this Germanic culture but completely erasing the culture before it. And so as we start to go through these books, you say, they called this China. They, well, it doesn't say China. It says Tartary and the tales from the East and everything. More and more, it's all about how East and West, there was this giant civilization called Tartary. And Tartary was this advanced civilization. The Masons talk about it as well. And the morals and dogma, Albert Pike mentions the Tartars as being um, nepotistic, the suffering of cronyism and that they deserve to lose their civilization. And it, it seems like this kind of fantasy after the 1800s, because at that point it is, there's no one who's living through the, the, the civilization at its height anymore. And so this idea that there was illumination from electric bulbs, which is referenced by many of these books, right? The Knoll Codex, for instance, talks about in the tales of the East of Tartary, that they had light bulbs and it's brought up again by uh, Bacon in New Atlantis, mentioning this idea that to the east of Tartary, they're rebuilding Tartary and they're building the new Atlantis. And guess what? America is considered Atlantis. We talk about tra uh, transatlanticism. And in political science, these are not metaphors. These are not parables. These are literally the words that they're using to describe in you know, the way someone has a, a name for a part of a guitar as a, as a neck or something, they're calling this Atlanticism. And if someone's talking about Eurasianism, well, that has to do with Tauron or, or Tarasia or, and so tar is this root word that we start to hear. The Persians didn't pronounce the Rs. So we hear Tata uh, and D, sometimes Dada, there's the Dada empire, there's the Tarch, but really Thracians, TH is also Tar. So Thracia and this idea that the Greeks and the Romans who didn't really build their culture, but stole or hired people that, they, you know, there were people that it's kind of like in Danny DeVito's mansion has a Tuscan feel to it, right? He didn't build his own mansion. So eventually you start to see there were workers in this giant collective. And the reason it became more important to me was because in school, they had taught me that every single in anthropology, that every single empire and state really had become uh, it come into being out of wartime and scarcity and trying to create this war empire, which doesn't make any sense. And there's every cool, every cool counterculturalist anthropologist and archaeologist have been trying to disprove that forever. And they've now found a number of examples. First off, you can see that the Edo period as an ethno state versus the Persian empire as a trading state the differences. One tangents into itself, which is, it's interesting, Japan's interesting, but it's not the same as this Persian empire that has people of all different races, creeds, and uh, religions, and ideologies that are trading with each other in an endless summer. And even Iran says that they adapted this idea from Uruk, and Uruk got their ideas from Sumeria, and Sumer 
they say that they only have the god Is Isis in the set because of uh, Inanna. And Inanna comes from the Arata. And Arata, if you start to look at these symbols, Arata and Tartaria are actually the reverse of cuneiforms. So this crazy line that goes, and the Arata civilization is not a thousand years old, it's 20, 30,000 years old. So this idea that there is a uh, a line of civilization that existed in the world since the last reset and that we're now headed into a new reset, it's very relevant. It's very relevant because it seems like some of the people that survived that last reset are in charge of the society today and are trying to manipulate the next reset so that they can maintain control tomorrow. So it's it's not just some sort of fantasy. And it's also something that's kind of gotten me in trouble because I'm no longer the only person talking about Tartaria. It's not even just um, the echo chamber of people that are making videos about things that I've already talked about anymore. It's now George Soros or Alex Soros has brought it up. It's now Klaus Schwab who's talking about Atlanticism. It's now um, in the news that there's a danger between the, a threat to Atlanticism, the idea that this is Atlantis, that you are living in Atlantis is being threatened by this idea that there might have been a civilization that was higher than this civilization. And how interesting is that? This idea that we have to believe that we are at the apex height perfection of civilization. This is very similar to Eurocentricity and the dangers that we saw over the last century of believing that we were the best, that everything started here, that no one has a lesson to teach us before. That's, that's already started to disintegrate in most of anthropology, in most of history. So when we start to apply that same look at the rest of history, we just completely erase all of the fake news. And using the tricks we know from today about how news is propagated, we can understand what they were lying about. And, and that's one of the most beautiful things. For instance, Phoebe Hearst, I did a video recently about how the Hearst, um, no, sorry, not Phoebe Hearst, um, Jane uh, Stanford, sorry. Another, another famous uh, wife of a Calif you know, Californian million, billionaire. Um, they built the Stanford school. St Jane Stanford was murdered, uh, poisoned. Uh, she survived the first poisoning, but later that afternoon was poisoned again. And the school was taken from her. And so the, we know there was a Jane Stanford because they, they murdered her. There's a habeas corpus. This is how you start to deconstruct news and realize, yeah, there, there definitely is a body here. And here are the people lying about it. And from there, we can take it back all the way to the beginning and say, there was this culture. Where was it? Well, it seemed to have been very famous in Ukraine and in Georgia and in regions that right now are at the epicenter of this World War III crisis that we're talking about, it's a place that supposedly had technology, um, plagues, plague factories, and now we're hearing about biolabs. And so the continual reflection there, it just seems like it's always pressing that we need to look into it. And as the ice thaw in Siberia is starting to melt, they're starting to say, oh, well, we're finding these older and older diseases or viruses that can be used and, wep and weaponized again. So every step along the way, Tartaria comes up as this, this, uh, this, this leftover remnant that has been tried uh, to be suppressed, but never completely erased by the rats and the secrets of Nib because they need it to control our society. And that's, I, I'd start with that. So how <laughs> many of the, uh, yeah, that, that's an amazing start. So just for the folks, uh, and I'm interested too, how many of the present um, 
actors out there, you know, that are prominent on the world stage can actually, uh, you know, be traced, you know, as far as their bloodlines or lineages back to these times? Are there any so, prominent names? So, of course, the, if you start to think about, you know, like Leonard Nimoy and any number of celebrities who escaped the Ukraine 100 years ago or their family escaped the Ukraine 100 years ago, you'll start to see that a huge number of American celebrities and politicians and uh, people in Canada that are running textile firms, uh, Irish families. It, but if you start to even go deeper, you realize that this isn't just a, you know, it's not like a race thing, because, again, it's not Japan. This is a trade empire. So one of the things is this idea that Putin is the heir or that Russia is the heir to Tartaria. They'll admit they were never in charge of Tartaria. They would have just been one of the witnesses at the forum. That was this trading experience. So it's not so much that it's and also there are there are foundlings. There are there are certainly families. And this is a very important aspect of the, the control of the world that run the world. But they're also the ones that have kind of hidden Tartaria from us. So it's important to deviate from saying, oh, well, the Tartarians run the world secretly. And it seems more like what happened was Tartaria fell apart. There was this complete collapse of the civilization. And the families that were maybe involved with the, there's a dynamic between the land power and the sea power. The land power has to cultivate and the sea power has to bring and maneuver resources back and forth. So, but, so by tradition, land powers are more, I would say traditional or con conservative because they're trying to get the resources the ways that are tried and true. But the sea power is always overcoming difficulties with technology and coming up with new ways. So there's a there's an ideological difference between the two. And we see that the Dutch East Indies Company arrives after this um, mock, you know, the, the Spanish have taken over Holland, but the, the, the Dutch were controlled by the, the, the Cordoba Caliphate at one point before this. So up until this point, there were Arab, um, there was an Arab Holland, but it was an Ottoman Holland. It was, it was yep. you know, and, and at this point, the redheads, you know, Geng Genghis Khan and Muhammad were redheads. It's a very different world than we were, we were told. Tartarstan today is a state in Russia that is one of the main um, embodiments of the ancient Tartarian civilization. And you can still see it has Islamic Arabesque art everywhere. All of these ideas that have made their way into Islam, but in the same way that we have Westboro Baptists, you know, and the Islamics have people that are not at the highest sophistication of Islam itself either. There are very advanced, sophisticated Islamic scholars and architects and always have been. And it goes back to even before Muhammad. And there, the use of the word Islam was used in Tartarstan and used in uh, Indonesia. And this idea that we talk about um, Zealand, I know they call it Lemuria in the old days, but it's it, that was before we could say, hey, now we have LIDAR. Now we're looking with lasers and we see there's, it's unequivocally true that there is a continent here that is called now Zealand. So all of these ideas for a hundred years, they were there, but they were considered um, a cult. You know, if, if Foster and Alice Bailey were talking about them or if Blavatsky was talking about them, they weren't taken with the same grain of salt, even though Blavatsky was interacting with Darwin. Blavatsky, uh, they were like ships in the night, both on boats during the same time. When she's talking about the her race theory, Darwin's learning about it and starting his race theory. So there's this, this is an essential connection between occultism and Tartaria. Mm -hmm. And so, it also... Go ahead. So much, so much to cover here. So I love that you you hit it on such a full spectrum level 
I want to back backtrack a little bit and give our audience a little bit of context in terms of of traditional historic context and where you see not only where how these resets have played, but when this Tartaria civilization, which is an overarching kind of how we talk about Atlantis, this is not a country. This is an overarching federation, if you will, a reality substructure, right, of the entire plane of existence that was Tartaria. Um, I'd love to get a little insight on how you see where this fits in in traditional history or when this was and how it relates to Atlantis, how you, you brought up Lemuria, and, and then we can kind of start to get a better framework for our audience. That's no, a lot of people are actually new to this too. A lot of our audience isn't new to this. Um, and then maybe we can start to get a little bit better picture of how we can bring in, like you're bringing in Islam and the Persian empire and these other empires, the redheads, this, maybe we talk about the Scythians, the, you know, what, how this relates to, to where, where Atlantis was the fall of Atlantis. I'd love to get into that so we can kind of set the foundation for moving forward to where we are now, if that's, does that make sense to you gentlemen? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, one of the things I would think is that it, 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 at certain times in history, history has been changed and we've, we've, we can look at, for instance, the Jesuit suppression, for example, when the Jesuits were excommunicated from the church because they had too much power in the 1700s and they went to America and they went to Russia and lived under Catherine the Great. I think they were in Belgium was their main headquarters actually. But then they, engineered control over the Franciscans and over a generation took over the Vatican again and killed the Pope that was in charge before them and found the body of the Pope that had excommunicated them and then put that body on trial, excommunicated the soul of that Pope, pulling it down from heaven, you know, and then said anything that he had said was, was null and void. And so we have in America, the prohibition of alcohol, but then we have, the the rescinding of prohibition of alcohol but you can still see that we had at one point of prohibition it's all there with the jesuits they just erased whatever 50 70 we're not sure exactly years of history just completely erased all, burned all the books and just started over from that point now there's also the gregorian julian alignment issue the russians didn't even use the gregorian calendar into the 20s of this last century 1920 30 or something like that and there's a phantom time hypothesis. And maybe some people are saying, well, who cares if, they, if this isn't this year, what's it matter? Well, it, it mattered more at the time. If someone said to you that Jesus happened a year ago versus Jesus happened a thousand years ago, the relevancy changes and little things like that mattered. In 1666, there was this giant fire in London and it burned so many of the books and all these records of things that happened over the last 1600 years were shuffled on top of each other. And we're starting to also find more records of this because this is also why it's so tricky. You go looking for evidence of where Catholics change something, it bleeds together because the local gods and local heroes and kings became gods, then became saints. And it's the same thing happened in India. You have a trinity in India, and you have all of these local gods that are incorporated eventually into the religion so it can continue to exist. But it makes it really difficult to figure out where the Indo-Aryan religion first re reach these diff different locations. So you um, good to say, Bear. Could you elaborate a little bit more on the phantom timeline? And does that get into some of the research of, uh, what's his name? Uh, Anatoly Flamenco. Right. Um, so, and, and I mean, I was fascinated with that. So how much of that is legit? What can you say? 
So he's really legit. He's a very legitimate researcher, but the, at the same time, he was a Russian researcher during the Soviet Union. So, so a, a number of his, uh, his books had secrets also. I feel like he was also hiding information in the books because he couldn't put out, he put out thousands of books and has hundred researchers under him. So it's a very large, it's, a, it's, an, it's important research because the Russians are trying to consolidate between the two calendars because they legitimately weren't using the Gregorian calendar. And when they started to, they realized it doesn't make any sense. But, so he was uh, government backed. He was. Yeah. Um, yeah. OK. Yeah, I mean, the Soviet Union, everyone had to be, you mm-hmm. know, but he but at the same time, he put out information that was contrary to what the Soviet Union would have wanted to hear necessarily um, information that made Moscow not the eden of you know that that ukraine why is ukraine so important right now well the the russians think that their whole civilization originates in kiev so it it, a lot of it has to do with anatoly fomenko and fomenko said also look at these line of kings you know this one's born and dies this many years apart this birthday that death day 10 lines the the father to the son for 10 generations now look at this other line of kings and it has the exact same birthdays and death days for 10 to 12 kings in a row is it possible that these are the identical birthday and death days for is it just how is that coincidence possible they live 76 years 36 years 26 15 you know there's a lot of discrepancy there well it looks like these stories were duplexed on top of each other to expand history first off they needed it to tell people this is what happened in your civilization will erase your civilization and tell you that this is what happened but it's the same story and you start to notice there's phenomenon of hellenistic similarities in norse mythology because norse mythology has been heavily doctored as well Uh, most of the norse mythology we understand has been completely rewritten since the 1800s. Same thing with Gnostic texts, right? With the Nag Hammurabi. The Gnostic texts have been hidden for centuries and then rewritten because they didn't want... I mean, there was a time when the Gnostics were right up there against the the, um, Pentecostalists, uh, the pseudo-Pentecostalists, pre-Tortullian. And they said, we shouldn't believe in Paul. So they had to kill everybody who wasn't into saying that the word of Paul was the word of God, right? And this is this, that's a very specific time when people believe that Jesus was a donkey. You know, they thought Jesus had a donkey head because there was a mistranslation from a Roman text when he rode into town as a donkey, not on a donkey, and St. Christopher with a dog head, and they could fly. And then in this gospel of Nicodemus, they went to hell and they had to save Adam and Eve because they've been stuck down there since issue 23 of the, I mean, there's a lot of, the Bible was different at the time. Um, But Wait, you had a, a more specific question. Well, Faminko, Faminko, uh, and he has an encyclopedic like work. I mean, it's massive, and he right. ties in math and all these things in the Julian calendar with the J instead of the one. I'd love to just quickly synopsize right, so that. The, the, so the J with the one, a big part of it is this idea that a lot of the buildings that were built in the year of our Lord, 680, or in our, the year of our Lord up to 880, 840, um, they used a J instead of a one at the beginning because it's not a thousand um, for 1800. It's in the year of our Lord, 800. And that we're looking at these calendars saying, there's 2,000 years here, but all these kings, right? So there really is just maybe 1,000, maybe 1,200 years of time since the uh, Anu Domini, 
that we call the birth of Christ, that there's been a duplexing of years in that period. Also, that there is a lot more history before that, but we say that history is only what we have records up to. So if we don't have the records and it's prehistory, it's just ancient, right? But the Mayans, the Sumerians, everyone's talked about these resets. Everyone said there was a reading of the Veda talks about these Kali uh, Yuga is a reset until the Devarapara Yuga. There's a number of resets that are already have happened. And this is not the first. And that's what we also find by looking into science. You know, you look at the volcanic uh, ice record indexing and you look at the different you can see that there's also the tree, the tree rings. Right. There's these moments where it's just, whoa, it's not the steady climb. There's resets. There's instantaneous change. Uh, did Fomenko, so how much? Did he, I just want uh, a quick question, Bear. Sorry to interrupt. Did he mention Jesuits? Yeah. So the, the, the thing is with Russians in general, the, there's a <laughs> there's an antitrust um, between the, the 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 church in general. Now, things have changed because so many traditionalists now run the Russian Federation. So they're open to the Orthodox Church again. But the Orthodox were suppressed at the time. The, the Orthodox and the, the Catholics were considered to be very dangerous. And the Jesuits had made a number of changes to the calendar. So in order to talk about this, you have to talk about the Jesuits because the, you know, it's Gregorian calendar. You know, we start to look at how these monks work together. They they design this calendar based on their control of older calendars. And the Jesuits had gone to China, you know, or Tartaria. They'd gone. This is the other thing. In the 12th to the 16th century, as you know, we're referring to it, which is really perhaps the second to the fourth century. There's a simultaneous change of Constantine into Istanbul and Tartaria is starting to be disguised. I mean, Pax Mongola has hit. The, the Jesuits can't get across. But as soon as the Marco Polo period is ended, um, there, there's a move into saying this isn't Tartaria. This part's Manchuria. And they start breaking it apart and saying this is really just part of this other place. And then eventually the empire of Tartaria has been completely erased from maps. And they're saying, oh, well, then it didn't exist. It was our misunderstanding of this. No, what happened was they literally moved in and manipulated the infrastructure of the government. The Jesuits were kicked out of Japan for doing this. They were genocided in Paraguay for doing this. They were kicked out of every. This is why the Jesuits were suppressed. They were manipulating governments. So, of course, we have records of them taking over the astron astronomical observatories. They can say, oh, we knew about Halley's Comet first because the Chinese did. So we took their information. This is this is the most interesting thing probably about the Jesuits. They're not just about bringing you a, the Bible in the new English version. No, they're trying to learn about how you talk to your gods. They're interested in alchemy, algebra, the study of Kemet, the study of Hebra, the study of any any of the ancient practices of Lemuria or Atlantis or Tartaria. So um is can we start to talk a little bit about more the astrophysics involved and the knowledge of that and how it's um you know hidden from us because that would give indication to the controllers of uh natural cyclic events uh that they would probably coincide the resets with and then you get into all the mudslides and all the stuff and and uh, so so i guess the question is you know how does all the natural cyclic events playing into this and how much are they actually used for by those who have foreknowledge of those things 
Some people think that the main reason they burned the Library of Alexandria was literally just because Hypatia was teaching people about the Earth's menstrual, menstrual cycles. I mean, just the fact that there are cycles and every major culture that I've ever seen that has a volcano refers to that volcano in a feminine deity sense as having a cycle. And there's a lot of ideas that the, this, we now call it Gaia theory. The world very soon, very normal atheists will be referring to the world's Gaia theory and having, oh well, yeah, there's organisms and they're all part of this para new sphere. We're, we're, we're on the verge of normies realizing what's going on. It's kind of yeah. like scientism gone animism. It's very, it can't help itself. It, it, this is one of the most amazing things about transhumanists because they're studying science. Eventually you'll notice what's going on. You know, if it's, if you can, kind of just go on presuppositions for a while but once you realize that dna is aware of itself enough to make conscious changes you can see there's no way this is from a sandstorm this is from a watchmaker and so this idea of consciousness and symmetry it's starting to reveal itself alchemy is like as you said alchemy is one of the most important aspects of this and we call it alchemy because of the study of kemet and this is evidence that in ancient africa or in the Songhai empire in timbuktu they were even aware of what was left over from the Arata and the Tartarian civilizations that they were a part of. And so this, this idea, Chinese medicine, Tartarian medicine, th where are the similarities there? This idea that we're not just looking at this tumor, but we're looking at the effects of this consciousness. Every step along the way, it's about consciousness. Consciousness is building up. Consciousness is working with each other. Consciousness can work against itself or against it can break it can you can have a mutiny of consciousness because of anxiety because of uh, a lack of harmony and royal rife talked about this this is a huge reason why he said hey look at these cathedrals if we use sound healing in these buildings with these old organs it would be really helpful well that turns out to be what you know go back to spain and you look at the cordoba caliphate look at the Lorca cathedrals and you'll see that they have and you know notre dame these windows have the chimatica patterns to show you which frequencies are meant to be played in each one of these uh, cathedrals. And so these four yeah. sided buildings, you play these sounds and people would come there to be healed. And, you know, and, eventually and that syncs up with yeah. the stars, right? In the time of the year to, to play those. And this going back to my original question, which is when that, when was the height of Tartaria in our own week framework we have of the Gregorian calendar were the dark ages, really the time of Tartaria. So my, my understanding of it. So I used to think that, but now I think it's just slightly before it. So, because the Cordoba Caliphate is the dark age. I don't, I don't believe in the dark ages really either, but what I believe is that during the period when there was a, and we, we, I do believe that this idea of a, a shattering of Rome, that is to say a shattering of Tartaria, really did exist. That there was a period when not everyone was connected anymore because of infrastructural destruction. If volcanoes went off, for instance, in Krakatoa and in Campi Fiegri and all over the world and disconnected parts of the empire, there would still be places that had higher uh, civilization. And the nomads continued to function. So Cordoba existed probably in the, in the 14th century into the uh, seventh century in 17th, right? Cause we're doing this, this thing. I've, I've been to Cordoba. I've been to the, um, the amazing uh, is, you know, I guess Moorish, um, you know, 
uh, what would you even call that? Um, the it's, mosque. The, it's a mosque, but it's, it's an, massive. It's, it's airport size mosque from <laughs> Dude, ten thousand years ago. And then they have these giant water wheels on the road. And the old stories during the period of Maimonides said they had streetlights. So that the, the lights were working from alternating current. So at night, so this idea that we're non-gas powered. So just thinking about how intense the technology was at that time, but it wasn't quite what we're hearing about in terms of um, cost, cost or these places in there's these Atlantis like fairy tale stories that people had this little village still had a generator and you know, in the beginning of the 20th century, you start hearing also going, or the 19th century, going to Minneapolis, and they still had a hydroelectric dam, going to Sao Paulo, and they still had hydroelectric, going to Iguazu, and the Germans rebuilding the old hydroelectric dam. So there's evidence of destruction for centuries before Look at this Na- point. Niagara Falls, right? They, you know, if you look at the pictures from the turn of the 20th century, it looks like they had hydraulics going way back that were melted or something. Yeah, the entire system, the entire system went through some serious uh, high energy changes. And we, we see that. And this is what has been every civilization says, you know, but also look at the different kinds of stonework, you know, and you see that Malta and Olmecs and, um, you know, Machu Picchu as well all have these you know same kinds of stone that slide into each other or that might have been crystal concretes because they could have been putting together stone that could uh, the crystallization of the stone that's been powdered in the concrete could eventually crystallize and continue to grow and turn it back into a stone starting with a piece of concrete. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that could Ed, have happened. Edgar Casey uh, talks about um, when he goes into his, you know, sleeping prophet zone uh, that Atlantis uh, had in the second, um, I guess, cycle of Atlantis, they had technologies that could melt the stone and reshape it. Uh, with sound and all that. So that makes a lot of sense that that technology was Tartarian. That's, you know, I, I see Tartaria as like the extension of Atlantis that after the fall, they left, you know, and then they rebuilt that technology again. And then you had the Sons of Bilal, which is what um, uh, Casey talks about, which is the dark faction, the service to self. They um, were keen on destroying Tartaria again, like they did with Atlantis. So we just had a repeat. We had a repeat once again of the destruction of Atlantis through these mud floods, I guess. And I I love, I know Bear wants to get into that too. Like what the hell are these mud floods? Because for me, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that there was a worldwide mud flood that covered all this stuff and that these structures were still sitting here while Native Americans were in North America. And there's no tradition that i know of with native americans talking about these structures from this ancient tartaria there's a lot of stuff that d- still doesn't match up with what we know and well, um, so yeah. with the with the native americans so part of the thing is this idea that atlantis was one of the city states involved in this land and sea power triangulated trade network and when and we see that because today maritime law still runs the world we live in this we call it anarchy but it's really maritime law where they're not under the sovereignty of their state but now this maritime has controlled these former uh land states you look at the colonization process of these maritime powers and they literally just went to these trading ports and took them and said well you're no longer going to belong to the land power you're now part of the sea power. So the sea power, all of the laws that we have, idea of citizenship of everything, that that's where that comes from. 
But the, you look at the internalization of technology, and this is an ancient concept uh, and, and also very new age, is that there's the fork and there's the pair of chopsticks. There's the concept of internalizing technology and how to use it. And that so many from Lemuria or this Zealandia that escaped somehow ended up with part of the technology. And you can imagine if like a company the size of Apple or Microsoft split and you had all the number guys land one place and they became numerologists for a, th a thousand generations and another group that were able to understand um you know pixel algorithms or something that they would understand geometry and this might have been part of what happened that not everyone had all of the information in the cappuccino economy and they kept holding on to what they did have and, and also in america it's important to remember that there were stories of you know like the uh, Anastasi, there's so many examples of, of completely wiped out peoples in Americas and all across the red, that. Yeah, the redheaded giants. Yeah, there's there there the, the natives have a lot of these stories and they talk about being enslaved. And there was the, the slave confederacy where they were being picked up and moved. There's a period that is just about the dark ages that happens in America, supposedly before Columbus. But we also know that there were Vikings that were coming there before this point. So from 12 to 600, all over the rest of the American hemisphere, there is interaction. There's erasure of culture there. And we have to remember how many of these stories don't exist anymore because they were erased. But the ones that do exist, it's very similar to the Scythian narratives in Canada, that there were, there's this civilization that what there really are stories of this high civilization that existed at one point and it was been erased. Um, the Mormons, I know everyone thinks the Mormons, I know that South Park did that special, but really, is it that weird to believe that the sons of Noah had five different wives that would look different and then they went to different parts of the world? And we start to see examples of that in North America and South America as well. And not exactly the way Joseph Smith described it, but probably the way it was that he'd heard it from the, the Masons and people, he the esotericists and the Gnostics, because again, the Gnostics were completely obsessed with interactions in the Western hemisphere. And they, their belief was that there had been a complete erasure as well. So, so many of these people, imagine you, you come to, there's a, there's a story about Rome when they took out the bar, the barbarians took out the aqueducts 10 miles out of town and it completely destroyed the fountains. There was no water without that infrastructure in the city. A lot of people died. You have to imagine New York city without technology, without electricity, a lot of people would die very quickly. So within a generation or two generations of Tartaria falling or of, of Atlantis like city states, because we now know that Atlantis is referencing that even in, in, um, Plato, he talks about there's 10 kingdoms of Atlantis. So you start to see the really it's when people get confused why there's so many possible locations for Atlantis. Well, it's because they're part of this larger infrastructure. But when Atlantis started to fall or Tartaria started to fall two generations in, nobody knows what to do about it. They've lost. I mean, if your iPad doesn't work for two generations and that's where you keep your books, you know, that's that's pretty bad. So there are certain circumstances where the Library of Alexandria is trying to keep written records. And we also, we know that there were paper books, but those don't last as long. So we're stuck using the, um, the cow skid, cowhide um, manuscripts, the, the vacuum manuscripts that we have. The things that were designed to last this long, were they designed to tell the truth? A lot of these are coming from these religious uh, institutions. So 
a big a big thing here is do you believe necessarily that Europeans were this apex when they showed up? We know the story that, oh, the Native Americans didn't invent a wheel. Yes, we've all heard that. But why are all of their calendars wheels? Why do they have wheel drums? Clearly, they didn't have a hard time with the circle. It was more, was it not useful? We, we have to start reapplying our understanding of if the civilization completely fell apart, becoming nomadic again would be the only way to survive that. That's exactly what happened at the exact same time in Asia. We have from the 12th century to the 14th century, maybe into the 15th century, um, the Pax Mongola. And Khans would literally burn your city to the ground. They'd make, if you surrendered, they'd let you walk out. They'd say, hey, you can, surrender, you can leave and go be in nature. And completely de-civilized uh, the world on purpose, intentionally, thinking that civilizations were leading to plagues, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. And now, you know, again, looking at anthropology, we are finding that before domestic humans lived in the Neolithic period, in the Paleolithic nomadic periods, they were a foot taller, lived a decade longer, they had a more diverse diet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all of it kind of proves the same thing, that even during the nomadic period where they were just nomadic from one city to another city, that they were healthier. So there's, there's, there's clear evidence there. So uh, what can you tell us about archaeological findings in North America? I'm aware of a lot in other parts of the world. Uh, you know, just a quick comment. Um, you know, the Library of Alexandria within alchemical studies, they talk about how the advanced uh, science of metallurgy understood by the Egyptians was one of the uh, one of the big reasons as far as why they raised that library in the first place, because the Vatican and the, the Jesuits and everybody were talking about were afraid that uh, with that process, with that understanding, the Egyptians could raise an army and defeat anybody in the world and finance it and so forth. So there's there's always a lot of backstories about everything. And, uh, you know, also we're talking about acoustics and rife, you know, even a lot of nature paths that are into rife technologies they really don't understand what rife was doing i used to use rife technologies but the technology i used delivered frequencies on an acoustic basic so it's all about sonics and that's what rife was actually doing also but anyway uh, that's a deviation so uh, back to the archaeological uh, you know i know we have graham hancock and folks like that that are kind of doing some good stuff but i think there's some other folks maybe that are maybe digging a little deeper if you pardon the pun Right. Yeah. So a good answer would be uh, Dr. Fowler um, mm -hmm. in, Can in Canada, and he's doing a lot of LIDAR research right now. And so for the last few years, we were using um, Google Maps and going with Google Earth 10 years back because you can use satellite images over the years and try to like look at places at different times to see when they're a little bit more visible because sometimes they're uh, completely erased. Now, a lot of them are still there because the military would just go into a place, take over a city fort and turn it into their military fort. Like Fort Anne is an example. But so many of them also just disappeared since the 1790s when they weren't being used anymore. And using LIDAR, we're scanning over and we're saying, hey, look at this, a giant snowflake that looks like it's from Mario Brothers, the size of 50 square miles or something. And or two you know miles in some area. It depends. There's there's different size uh, star, snowflake starports everywhere. But Fort Anne is up in Canada. Krigler Mound. When you start looking at the mounds, and mounds are interesting because they're the the most. This idea of there being a ritual mound where you build. And a lot of times there's a human sacrifice, right? Or three. There's a the completely dismembered child, 
And then there's a burnt, partially burnt warrior. And then there's an old person buried at the other end. And then they'll build a civilization on top of that. We're, I'm, we're not exactly sure what all the religious implications of that were, but you see that in a number of circumstances that there is human sacrifices in these places. And, and this is the same in, in Europe, right? You, you find the same thing in, in, in Rome, you find the same thing in Germany, but it's interesting when we see it in the Americas, because we wonder, you know, what were they, what, what were, what were the circumstances that led to this? Because it seems like in certain times when there's a famine, that's when people do the human sacrifice thing. Cause they get super desperate and they're trying to figure it out. So we, we, we find places also where there's giant tunnel systems and then uh, Texas, there's the, the stone wall that's underground. They found a giant stone wall underground. San Luis Obispo, there's a cathedral that's been unburied that they found that was underground. And they're saying, oh, it must have been built in the 1800s or maybe the 1600s, but it, it's got to be like a thousand years old. I mean, it's just, it looks, being, having been to cathedrals all over the world, you can, you can tell the difference in designs and the way the flying buttresses are done. Unless you got somebody who was really like a, a student of, it, it, it at the time in the 1600s, a student of ancient neoclassical architecture who was, it'd just be, it's really highly improbable. And, you know, then you find uh, the Statue of Liberty is in the octagonal star fort. And there's so many examples of this Wall Street in New York, Wall Street, because the wall, it was one of the walls that they took down of the star fort when they, uh, when they invaded New Amsterdam. So everywhere you go, there's there's tons of examples of these giant pieces of, of building. And Eurocentricity would have us think that all the Native Americans lived in teepees, but really you can only find one or two tribes that really functioned with teepees. It's not their main mode. Brick masonry, there's there's all sorts of evidence of, of, of Mexican Incan, um, perhaps even... Um, the Sioux knowing how to use uh, brick masonry because they're in places where they can get stone and they can break it down, but then it's lost. And people wonder, how can you lose something like that? Well, again, I mean, if there's this giant plague or famine, or there's a complete loss of infrastructure, then you'll go back to nature. Papua New Guinea doesn't seem very advanced technologically, but they're using hexadecimal number systems for their calendar. They're aware of astronomical sites like the Sirius star, Clearly, at one point, they had telescopes. Clearly, at one point, Papua New Guinea was far more advanced technologically if they're aware of these things and where they are. The same thing applies in the Americas. There's clearly a point when civilization collapses. Uh, we also see huge examples of uh, fauna going extinct at that point, right? So the mastodons and the... This is a lot more recent than we realized. I mean, we... we admit it was it was no longer than 12,000 years ago but as we start to notice these are nomadic things there could have been mammoths a thousand years ago literally wouldn't have there there's enough evidence to show that would explain a lot of why there's permafrost uh saved mammoths as close as they really are and if civilization within the last a thousand years went through this it well what are the stories we have we have the crusades we have the uh, native wars we have the Scythian um, experiences with the redhead giants where they were in battles constantly. That's where we start to see also the, oh, Bermuda and Haiti. You have these giant stone structures that look just like the stone structures you see in other places in Spain, in France, in Brazil, in America, in, in New York. But 
they're much bigger in Haiti. They're much bigger in the Caribbean. They look like they're the epicenters or these island areas. And they look very similar to the ones you'll find in Indonesia. Although a lot of the ones in Indonesia have been destroyed by volcanoes, you'll start to see the same kinds of giant stonework. So it seems like these are the places where they really um, were the most powerful places. Um, I'm forgetting the Barbados is also another example, which has been completely taken over and Barbados became the slave trading capital of the new empire. So all of these places where we're looking at saying, this must have been built by British colonials on their vacation while they were trading slaves or rather by the slaves they employed. They just made them do it and they did the best job they could do for some reason. These stories don't hold water. And as we start to date some of these buildings, we're like, wait, this was in Haiti before the British got here. Definitely before, probably before the French got here, uh, unless maybe the French were brought here. And then this is another thing we start to see is that Celts, Britons, Slavs, they were part of a slave trade. It doesn't mean exactly the same thing that we understand it today because there were certain kinds of rights that you had as a slave and you could be uh, given a retirement plan because you were, you, it's like an apprentice. The master had responsibilities for you. So this, this is kind of infrastructure which allowed for colonization and responsibility for all sorts of people. But yeah, there's been, you know, when you start to look at the 1800s, the 1600s to the 1811 and 1812, there are cannonballs and all sorts of weaponry being used to completely destroy these infrastructural locations. And there are giant earthquakes. You know, 1811 completely destroyed Caracas. Um, just this huge earthquake just shook it to the ground. And there's a number of examples like that. We see these giant craters in parts of America. 1812, the Mississippi River ran backwards for like a week because of giant shifts that were happening in, in the nature. Take your pick what it was, because the newspapers talk about earthquakes, Napoleon's Comet, but Napoleon's Comet was for 260 days, most of the year from August until the next year. It was just nonstop comets in the sky, craziest sky people had seen in a while. And people- You also who, had the summer that never happened right around right. There. Right. And then it's so about three years after that, you have a summer, you have the, the winter, the sum, winter without a summer or the year without yeah. a summer. And so, a lot, but there's been that even extends into different areas, you know, in Russia, in 20, 1817, you know, in England, 1815. So really it's like five to 10 years of really bad weather. And this isn't the first time that's happened. So we see examples of environmental shifts connected to resets. Also the idea of mud flood. I mean, Every cartoon you've ever seen, there's the level of mud, and then there's the skeleton, and then there's Atlantis, and, there's <laughs> all, and, then, and then there's the Ninja Turtles. But you always see it. They always try to put the predictive programming into your vision that there are that archaeologists are digging because for some reason sediment levels have risen <laughs> since this point. But you know it, it holds water if you take and um, I've interviewed a lot of people who've survived mud floods today because when I was living in Peru, one of the main things we were trying to worry about, which is before I really thought about Tartaria, when people start saying, have you heard about the mud flood? Well, um, Waikos are these mud floods that happened in Peru because they've torn out trees. There's areas where mud, the water saturates the rock. Um, there's not a lot of rock. The dirt rises up in liquefaction and then you have mud that pushes. And if you look up pictures and videos, you know, Mongolia, there's just videos of mountains, just hills just moving past you. And volcanoes can also 
because of steam and sediment underground can just push the steam to push the mud and release mud. You can have actually mud you eruptions. Have, you have liquefaction, right? From extreme right. Um, uh, friction from tech, you know, uh, underneath the ground moving at extreme right. speeds where it literally liquefies the dirt. Um, and so we're, we, we're, we, you know, there's lots of theories on whether this was some technology that was done or if this was some sort of natural reset. Um, we've covered some of this in the past. It's really and, closely and, related though. Like, so if you've seen Oklo, mm -hmm. the volcano, there's a natural nuclear reactor in, um, natural because it's hard to imagine that in an ancient civilization, they had nuclear reactors that are better than ours, but yeah, no, there's this in Gabon, you've got Oklo and there's 16, linear accelerator sized nuclear reaction chambers. And there's, there were more, but the French government blew them up because they didn't want anyone to go researching them too much. So we, we know that nuclear fusion can happen in volcanoes, whether or not it's completely natural is a weird question because I think at that point it doesn't really matter. But I mean, it, I don't think it's completely natural now. I do think that there was a point where civilization was so much more advanced than us that they would naturally use geology to make nuclear reactors that makes a way it's far more logical than the way we're doing it now so so a couple points uh, one of the big mainstream criticisms of even like hancock's work and stuff is that there isn't a record of met metals that go back pre twelve thousand years ago that would show an evolved sure we have some stone structures but where are all the tools where are all the other technology and for me i i have a lot of different theories on that but have you um have you heard, you know, because obviously traditional anthropology says that real civilization didn't start to Sumer, you know, uh, and <clears throat> because we don't have, sure, we found some other, other, you know, stonework, but we don't have any other signs of official civilization as we would consider it. Also in the records in terms of um, farming and agriculture. Um, so obviously we also know that traditional anthropology comes from an academic tradition that is controlled by certain elements. Yeah, the Smithsonian's so, not gonna tell you anything. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay, so first I guess you could say there's a lot more than we realize. Again, it's the Eurocentricity. Americans and English people couldn't read certain things. So they dismissed them. And thank God, because they would have just burned them anyway. And in the last 50 years after Libya's liberation, or if you look at what's going on with uh, in West Africa, Timbuktu's manuscripts, there's a million manuscripts that they found. Not everyone can see. And you know, you ask, wait, why are, why are there so many hidden manuscripts? And like, well, we were afraid that the West would lie about them or destroy them so i mean uh, who could uh, who could wonder why they would, would would worry about that but basically there's been more and more evidence coming that you know Songhai empire had access to pre before the bronze age was the copolitic age if you start if you go to Lorca and Lorca is for Heliorcus in Spain helios orchestration so sun run city you start to notice there's a lot of these solar powered cities around the world uh they all if you dig up a little deeper Literally, you'll find in them copper and in pure copper that's been uh, probably through electrolysis produced. And this is done 8,000 to 12,000 years ago before the uh, Bronze era, Age. So the Bronze Age is another reset. And we know that because bronze is easier to work with, you can use certain kinds of heat technologies. 
but it's also more primitive the way that they're working it and the ideas that they had. Meanwhile, the Egyptians, and again, Egypt's a weird word because it's a Greek, you know, word, but what is the word Greek even? Like, it's a Hellenistic concept. Let's move on to Kemet. Alchemy is for Kemet. So in the times of Kemet, there was a mega chat. The mega chat was this giant lake system that was big. The mega, I mean, it's a great name. The giant, now we call it the Sahara. It's a desert, but at one point, Sahara was a metropolitan lagoon city, like a bigger Venice, and people could go anywhere. And this is the kind of thing that we're starting to dig under. You look at megalithic structures online, a good number of them are underwater or underground uh, or under sand piles. And that's a big problem. It makes it a lot harder to find things. Now, in terms of stories like that, also, Native Americans have stories that during their reset, the Incans went into the mountains for 100 years. Uh, the Apache have a story like that. The Lakota have a story of going underground for 100 years and that everything above it was destroyed. Uh, in, Amer in California, you have Telos. This idea that the gold rush is because the top of Telos exploded, but the bottom of Telos is still underneath Mount Shasta, and that's still working out. So there, there are a lot of stories from the natives about a reset and about a high civilization that was lost. In terms of high uh, civilization's metals, well, I mean, why, why is gold so unique? Like the way we're finding gold is not normal. It's not just, you, there's certain places where gold is really melted into the rock and it's, it looks like it's actually been purified and then melted back into saturated into stone. And that's, that's pretty questionable. Um, and again, with volcanoes, when we start to re research this idea of carbon dating, uh, it's completely thrown off by nuclear volcanoes. I mean, if, if a volcano is able to radiate, we're, we're able to now use other methods of deduction and say, hey, this is how long, it, but it doesn't make sense because that would have been way more recently, you know? <laughs> so, but then again with the Smithsonian, because remember the Smithsonian killed a guy, John Smithson, took his money, took his whole library and, and, and made a fake will. He died in Italy, he's an Englishman. And they said he always wanted to go to America, I guess, and for some reason, and took all of his money and built the Smithsonian Institute in America, and that basically controls, I mean, you know, the giants story that they found a bunch of giants and then they obscured the bodies and dismantled the evidence of the skeletons because they had uh, second pairs of molars in their jaws. And there's the, um, uh, what's it called? The Grand Canyon. The, 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 I was the, just going to say the whole yeah. Grand Canyon with the Egyptian connection. But there uh, wasn't really Egyptian. See, that's again, yeah. we're using Tartarian. Tartarian. Yeah, and, and there's been some pictures of it and you start to reveal it. And then, okay, so back to Samaria and Samaria says that they got everything from Uruk and Uruk got everything from Arata and Arata. If you look at it is Tartaria. I mean, it's not the same because Tartaria, Tartaria, well, so again, with the land and sea powers, it, but yeah. I think that, I think that, tar, that there's a reason why Atlantis is the one that's promoted by the elite. No, I mean, the idea that America is Atlantis New Atlantis. I, I think Edgar Casey said he was a Rata. Was that right, Bear? He was an incarnation, reincarnation of Rata. I've I've never heard that one. Okay. Um, so if we move down more into the continent of Africa, how does that tie in? How does those races of people tie in? 
So, I mean, everybody, so that's one of the beautiful things about this is that in a, in a trade network, everyone's tied in and you start mm -hmm. to see that there was a lot more interaction with people before, but there are people that stayed on land and then there are families that went by sea. So the Royal families are far more connected internationally and have been for a long time compared to groups that literally stayed, not just Royal families though, merchantel class also are more interconnected around the world. Um, you, had the are, you had the Dogon tribe, right, in, in Africa that have this tradition with the dolphin people, but they're landlocked, but they talk about sea and stuff. Right. And then, again, looking at the mega Chad, at one point, it was a donut, like the center of Africa was water. It was very green. It was very easy to get to traverse anywhere. But we look at the haplotypes and I wish I'd... Um, I wish I'd studied this right before this. So I say this correctly because I can't remember the names of every haplotype. I mean, I can't, I can, but I can't remember which ones are which I know that it's like a through O connects you to the Indonesian haplotype. O to O one, two, one, eight is the haplotype that we're thinking it might not be. And this is, um, upset so many people and i know zephyr has upset people on this but i don't think he just explained it properly that there's an into africa theory that blavatsky's talked about it does hold water because zealand was the land that madagascar is connected to and for, for so long they thought humans might have come through lemuria from you know uh, madagascar but looking further haplotype o shows pretty decent examples of and okay another reason why people didn't realize this is because we were only genetically indexing people's exome and not looking at the junk dna thinking that of course it's all the same but what we have is far more interesting we have this this gene flow between different types of hominids that goes back to the very beginning and each one was able to have gene flow even though they were theoretically different enough that they would be considered by science to be different hominids i mean that's incredible and it's it's that is on one hand, racism, and on another hand, it's beautiful because the idea that humans can interbreed, I mean, that's not true with, with uh, a lot of species. If you have uh, various kinds of, of horses and, and donkeys making mules that are sterile, I mean, promoter sequences don't always cross like that. So it shows that there's intelligence to DNA. It shows that clockwork, clockmaker um, aspect to DNA that we're meant to interact with each other, even from the first days. And it also kind of reiterates that Blavatsky idea and no, these races are not different races. They're actually a, a, a generation that is happening and that there's a evolution of consciousness that is shaping our civilization. But also this idea that we're not the best because there were giants, there were smarter dwarves than us. We're not necessarily some apex of anything. And that's, I think it's very scary to the last generation that wanted to believe we were. So uh, I don't want to open up another can of worms, but I will anyway. Um, you know, when you get into a lot of this kind of subject matter, you get into, you know, people tend to conflate a lot of things. You know, if you're into this and you got flat earth, you got all sorts of stuff going on. So how do we merge that in? And, you know, people really questioning right now the, the shape of our realm. Uh, is it a realm? Is it a planet? And, and uh, what kind of um, information comes forth through your research channels, uh, you know, relative to Tartarian past civilizations? Is that discussed at all? So I, I'm a big fan of um, 
of research in general. And I think that even if something isn't exactly the way everyone else sees it, especially then probably it's worth looking into. And I know a lot of people make mm-hmm. fun of, um, you know, independent researchers that are questioning things that are taken to be completely as facts. But I would say as someone who used to work for NASA, that if you're interested in pursuing alternatives to the heliocentric model, do it because it's interesting. And not just because you're going to find out that they're, that they're lying to you, but because they are lying to you and they have to, there's a reason, you know, we're talking about deep state, we're talking about interstate secrets. We're talking about how humans are going to deal with culturally the truth. Uh, There's a reason why they're lying, but move beyond that, start looking at all the data. And if you start, and this is one of the things I think is interesting about the non-heliocentric community is that their whole research bag is based on empiricism. I like that. If you're using your own and each other's collective enterprise of empiricism to find out what's true, you're going to get a more interesting story and a narrative out of it than someone who's just piecing together pictures from the satellites. And that's what we're we're told it is. It's just, just connect. I mean, you're not getting the full picture that way. But I would also say be careful about believing anything is any which way because we're living in an electric universe. So I think it's pretty plausible that you could change your perspective and believe that you are living in a spheroid. I think that's that's part of how physics works. It's, it's breaking Euclid's hyperbolic laws, but it, it can be done. And, and it's true. And when you go in one direction, you come out the other direction. So metaphysically, there's, I mean, you look at the Masonic traditions, they're the ones who brought up the idea of the globes, holding the, the inverse of Yakum and the uh, solar, um, the celestial sphere uh, and Boaz on the two pillars. So there's always been this idea of being able to look at things as a sphere, but being able to look at things flat is very important mathematically too. Flatland comes up every day. If you're into physics, if you're into quantum physics, the holographic universe is where it's at. And we've, we've proven if you take a plane and you have something that is bouncing into itself and it's 10 times its own size, the incremental number of interactions will be pi. It's a perfect curve of pi. So we experience curves as you know a, a geometrical experience, but it's really just entropy. So everything, it's more that the entire universe and multiverse is flat. Everything is just this one flat holographic dense plane. Yeah, and um, you, you know, there's a, a great body of work that was done by Goethe, and uh, Steiner made it the subject of his uh, doctoral dissertation. And around that, it was all about okay, you have empiricism, but then when you stay completely within that realm, uh, as we see with science, as we call it these days, you'll have theories that are made based on what you observe, but then you always find these anomalies in nature that don't fit that theory. So then you need another theory to explain that. Now the theories start contradicting each other. So what Goethe and what Steiner did is they developed a way to understand. I made a comment at the beginning of the discussion today that I look at things as a congealed cosmic function Mm -hmm. rather than actual set in stone kind of matter. And they, uh, you know, created a whole methodology where now just rather than looking at, uh, you know, polarities, there's this other parallel or secondary polarity that actually exists. And when you internally develop that knack within yourself to see with those eyes, then you, you know, different things appear to you. And so, you know, I don't so much um, 
really care myself about the shape of the realm. And uh, I, I know we've been lied to. I mean, I'll agree with everybody on that. But what I think is more important is how do things function? And when you see how things function, then pretty much, uh, you know, everything starts being revealed from that point on. And um, anyway, uh, kind of a little bit of a tangent, but no, I know absolutely. when I get like, into Tartarian circles and everything, you, you know, we start conflating all these issues and uh, I'm with you and, you know, Mike and I talk all about all the time about waveform mechanics and basically it, it's all about a, a simulation, whatever, however you want to look at it, but it's not what we think it is. Right. And they can control your, um, your perspective, the more you believe and the more you believe in the different perspectives of things, the more you see things that way. But it is very interesting. We're living in a world, I think, you know, Isaac Newton even wrestled with this, this idea that there's a sun and a moon that are virtually the same size as each other, but we're supposed to believe that they're very different in distance and they're very different in size. And that this is an entire optical illusion of God or Lucifer. So that's a question that is worth asking. And a lot of the time we are going to believe um, what others believe because it's easy to work with that. I think that another couple guys to consider, you know, are Gertchief and Reich because Gertchief oh, talked right. a lot about the, you know, yeah, well, the, the Gert, both, both of them are important. I love Gertchief because he's very Tartarian. Clearly the, the, the studies come from ancient um, complementary physics and interactions. And well, look where he come, look where he comes from too. He comes from that area. That's that weird kind of where, you know, Ukraine stuff's going on right. that. And, and then of course he has the Sufi background, right? Right. Which, and which yeah. Sufi, so that's another important thing is the Hellenization of Sufi mysticism, Sophiac um, Islam, mm -hmm. but it's proto-Islamic because it really goes back to the ideas. Zoroastrianism of, and right. the, the original um, Persian, uh, I guess you could call it uh, the philosophical tradition that way back then, that's probably an offshoot from Tartaria or Atlantis. Right. Talking about the Yazid, you know, as mm -hmm. well. And then, you know, now people think that the Yazid are evil and you look at this idea of paganism is very often it says the other thing is evil. So this is just backwards to us, but you look at, you know, Etruscanism and the language is reversed. Hold on. Let's do Reich for a second. Reich talked about toroids a lot and this idea of um, anxiety uh, the organ energy. I think you brought up organ. I was very excited. Those were the first things that we were talking about. We're big, right? We talk about Reich a lot on the show, just so you know. That's good. That's I think more people <laughs> should because they burned so many of his books. That's crazy. But <laughs> Reich is um, a very, you know, for people that are not interested in the um, traditional ideology, it's it's a, it's adapted to modern empiricism and science perfectly. And it's hard to avoid the, the facts that Reich has, has pointed out unless you just burn all of his books. So we, we are living in an era of conformity versus um, uniformity and harmonization. It's easier to just conform with someone. But if you can harmonize, then you can continue to exist in multiple planes of reality and of perspective. And that allows you to make better choices. I think that's the main thing that happens when you believe in your reality is you stop at stoplights. Yeah. Yeah. And what, I was just going to say uh, the, the fantastic thing about Reich's work is it resurrected the understanding of a malleable ether that uh, you know is not just malleable but malleable to our consciousness and 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 then we also like walter russell because you know he appeals to that western mind as far as how the toroid is affected with the 
you know, the, the, the cyclic hydraulic, uh, you know, electrical forces that create those toroidal fields. So it's, you know, all this stuff is, is out in the open. Now we have biogeometry, you know, which I use quite a bit where we're literally going into those ancient structures that we're talking about, you know, whoever built them initially, uh, but, but able to verify with, with those techniques that there's a very specific resonance, you know, emanating from certain shapes and that uh, those different kinds of resonance have different effects. Now we can reproduce those effects and, 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 you know, use them in a practical way. That's really so, the big you know, change because in yeah. the sixties, in the forties, the sixties, the 1880s, you know, there were people talking about this stuff and yeah. there's always a group that says, what's the point? Well, the 1880s group are the ones who invented radio and television because they were trying to communicate with spirits mm -hmm. or whatever, but they were in, they ended up making it possible to further tele, telepathic and telekinesis in certain respects, arguably you'd say it's, it's, it, as long as it doesn't materially shatter it. And even then hypermaterialism leads back to energy that tele, telepathy is not reduced because of modern technology. Similarly, sonication, I would say you're bringing up, I mean, there were people talking about sound healing a long time ago. Now we use it to remove gallstones. There are people that have cancer. We're using sonication instead of radiation. It's a kind of radiation, by the way. So as we start to realize that this ancient technology is, is functional and it's necessary for, our, for us to continue to thrive and not even continue to begin to thrive. We're dealing with cancers and all sorts of repercussions because we're not using these original techniques, which are tried and true. So technology has become the main, one of the main reasons people are interested in Tartaria. Uh, you look at the pan telegraph machine and they were, they were using this undulating pen that could draw uh, a picture and they could take a woodcut and send it to someone in from the Alamo to Russia over the transatlantic telegram. So people had fax machines and in the 1800s, we see the first patents of it, but they realized he stole it from another book of, of writings from, from Holland that he got from Italy that came from the Tartarian uh, center of the Cordoba Caliphate and the Umayyad Caliphate. So same thing with, you know, um, Library of Alexandria. The technology wasn't so relevant in the 1600s when they burnt it down. It was more ideologically the, the dangers of people having access to information. But now, what are we, when people hear about Library of Alexandria, aside from us, the normal people, I think a big part of it, they're like, wait, they had steam engines and, you know, 2000 years ago. What's the deal with that? So it, it is super relevant because the more we understand it, the more we can apply it and it, it, it's extending lives. It also explains why we have um, a large part of the population that is manipulated on the mental plane and how that is technologically achieved. And uh, not just understanding that we have a lot of zombies walking around, but it also would allow people, if they understood this, to protect themselves and get their own mental processes back under their control. And, you know, the planet would be a different place if everybody understood how to think again. It's, it's an interesting thing. I think a um, uh, hundred years ago, people were more different. And because of television, we've gotten to the point now where you don't even need laugh tracks on shows because they've already, they're so effective at, at manipulation that people now have the same um, responses to particular stimuli. I, I feel like that's the big, if, if there was one sentence that was the multi-billion dollar goal of that, that deep state project, it was, make everyone respond the same. And we look at harp and we look at examples of um, 
I forget the name of the Ukrainian version of harp now, but there's another, and there's, they, they will send out signals that we think can control the weather. But a lot of the time, you know, beyond that, it's, it's the interaction of bring cake, getting you to think about cake enough that you bring cake to work or that you make cake or that the entire civilization is obsessed with cake. That's those experiments have been proven. And we are living in a civilization full of people that are gently influenced. The first drug, that was really popular with the OSS and then the CIA was before LSD and, you know, ketamines and PCPs was um, scopolamine because scopolamine is, you know, the devil's breath. They use it for the, for getting you to be completely delirious and go along with the flow. Like, Oh, you, you need your mom's in the hospital. Do you have any money? Give me all of your money, sell all your stuff. And people will go along with that. Scopolamine is found in, um, belladonna and all sorts of these plants in, in witches used it to make delirium medicines but it's also found in every nightshade you know it's found in tomato to potato tobacco eggplant uh, peppers and things like that and as you can imagine there was a point in american diet where they didn't have a lot of potatoes or ketchup and all of a sudden there's this i like ike period that just happens and you can imagine how quickly they understood the bernaysian concepts of you know short but sweet uh monosyllabic identity uh, identify identifiable statements and you're smoking a cigarette and you're eating french fries with ketchup on it and you're thinking to yourself yeah i do like i i mean this whole whole power of uh, uh power of impression um it really it's it's it started it started before that but it's america is really the 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 crowning achievement of mind control i have to admit <laughs> that's an um, understatement so i i wanted to just quickly touch then on on the reset itself because i think it's i still trying to wrap my head around when we can kind of place these resets and how how monumental they are because this is i think one of the most challenging aspects of all this and so you we mentioned the the yugas right the yuga cycles are like million year cycles well no they're no they're noble years so there's another thing is um isaac newton did a, a thing on the noble aryan year and said that these are actually and this is one of the reasons why his multi-million year thing is kind of a joke because he's saying well really it's your aryan years you know seasons yes so my question, and it seems like to me, so one of my criticisms of like the traditional Tartaria 1800 reset, you know, just 200 years ago is that like I have a family line on my father's side where we have a family tree where we can track it back to the 1600s. There's no, there's no indication that there was some mud flood that disrupted our entire civilization. And I think a lot of people have that in their own personal well, family. Well, there, there, there are, so my, again, my family were uh, Spanish in that period as well. Um, so I, I don't ascribe to the 18th century reset, but I do believe that there were resets in the 1800s. So the idea of smaller resets, like in Back to the Future, we don't have any records because the, the books were uh, in a flood that took out the town. Yeah, that happened a lot. There's a lot of examples where Galveston or Los Angeles in the 1800s flooded and they lost the, all of the, the fires, uh, the fires and they, so, lost, and they lost a lot of records there. But in the 1600s, right? So fire of 1666 is the beginning of the null codex and the rebranding of Tartarian history and saying, well, they really weren't that great. Before that, Tartaria is known as the greatest thing. From the 12th century to the 14th century, it's an enigma you can't get to because it's like a fan, it's like um, Avalon. You know, it's, it's, it's just so far away at that point. Before that, it's a place that people interacted with. And you have the um, 
Another good example are Tartarian slaves in England being freed in the Bodmin manumissions, which, you know, there's this huge biblical work saying that why slaves don't exist in England anymore in the, in the first uh, century. And I'm calling the 10th century the first century because the Flamenco timeline. But there's so many things, 13th century, 300 stacked on top of each other, Constantine versus the uh, the beginning of the Jesuits. Um, the Crusades is, a, I believe, the period right after Tartaria's fall and the beginning of yeah yeah see that's where I was getting at that makes more sense to me than you have the initiation of the printing press Mm -hmm. uh, which although it's it's just a re it's the rebuilding of the printing press sure (laughs) so I feel like that is around the time where they could create the propaganda to really push this kind of new structure of reality and and it begins by saying the Chinese you know they had black powder they had clocks but they never used them they didn't even really get you know this is the beginning of eurocentricity you know the true they had the stuff but they didn't even know what to do with it they didn't even understand that you could put it in a stick and shoot it at people crazy people that's the beginning of that and we we talk about seven crusades when there's 13 crusades because the cathars are a crusade the crusade states are taken apart um you know but there's a number of 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 examples where we've said well this was really rome right that's a big part of it saying thracia was rome because at that point the the scandinavian saxons who were again they're using lions on their shields because they've been to eritrea they're part of the african um macedonian mark of dan 12 tribes etc 13th lost tribe and you start to see these are the tribes it's a it's a it's a the idea of going from egypt to Ukraine is a big story that they have as well, that about a thousand years before the beginning of Kiev, that they trans, they, 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 they traversed these great mountains and they went across Cyprus and Greece and they went across the, the, the waters and eventually made it to the Ukraine, you know, the, the, the skull and Taurus Bulba, all of these stories start to emerge in the 1800s. So we have a complete new narrative in the 1800s. That's completely true. Like the, the 1800s is the beginning of this narrative. And it's also when the, um, you start to arrest people who saw Napoleon's comet and put them in insane asylums. If you thought that there's this comet and this, this weather that for 260 days, the, the, the crazy things were happening, the Mississippi going backwards and cities like Caracas falling. And you thought any of that had to do with, or could have helped Napoleon beat, um, you know, the, the burn Moscow or take over Spain, or if you had any thoughts of the, the Napoleon comet, they would just put you in an insane asylum. So there really is a huge changeover period and the foundlings, right? The hidden hands, all of a sudden, a whole new generation based on the Jesuit concept of we're going to be the fathers and you're all going to be the altar boys, liberation theology. That the Masons continued it on after the suppression of the Jesuits. When they excommunicated the Jesuits, immediately Freemasonry takes over. Scots take over the Queen's throne. King James VI and the first takes over England. The Masons of Scotland take over England. The, the Grand Royal Arch Freemasonry starts to really thrive at a point when Erasmus and Bohemian um, Rosicrucians were really popular in the Catholic order, but the Catholics didn't like it. They were thinking this was too dangerous. The same with the, the, um, the Jesuits. So there was a group that went to Scotland and that starts the, the Freemasonic order. There's a huge, huge implicated connection between the, uh, the suppression of the Jesuits and the rising up of Freemasonry and the, the YMCA kind of franchisement of Freemasonry yeah. where they were building or buying buildings from Freemasons all around the world. So they could have its uh, corporate infrastructure, the beginning of Marine corporate infrastructure 
out of the out of the Jesuit Empire. But again, the 12th century to the 14th century, that's the last of what is, you know, that's completely the collapse of the former civilization. And there are still some pocket kingdoms that made it. And you start to notice that by the 1800s, that's what they've, they, they've taken. You go to Sao Paulo and they're like, wow, Brazil, it's amazing. We have electric cars. We have, you know, hydraulic free energy. We have all this stuff. Where are all these systems today? You know, you go to Minneapolis, they blew up in the 1800s, the um, flour mill which was, you know, he's weird, right? Well, flour has gluten in it and it creates nitrous, um, um, creates uh, nitroglycerin and a spark then caused these, this giant building to shoot stones larger than the pyramids of Giza over the Minneapolis river and every side and completely destroy this town. And that's known as the great flour explosion of 18, a hump of hump, you know, and that's, that's what they do to completely dismantle the infrastructure. But there's so many examples where they just didn't know how to run the stuff that they took over and it collapsed. I mean, every step along the way that they could find something, it, it, it went bad for them because they didn't know how to use it. And it isn't until the beginning of the 1850s, 1860s, that you see Latter-day Saints trying to rebuild Deseret. And their idea is, hey, in America, there was this great empire and there was Zion. And after Eden, you know, there was, you know, there's all sorts of things that happened, this major collapse in civilization. People started killing and eating each other and sacrificing babies, right? And that all the buildings that fell over, we have the Solomonic architectural knowledge to rebuild them. So we're going to go back and we're going to put back up Salt Lake City. And with the help of the U.S. government, they went through California down to San Diego and they started complete, I mean, the goal was to build Deseret. And you look at the size of Deseret in old California, before they took Nevada from California, but before they took Oregon and Washington, California was, before it was in the shape of an owl, it was this big giant Deseret state. And they did this on purpose, clearly. I mean, there's a, on all levels, they tried to make sure that California wasn't powerful enough to, to maintain itself as an empire, which is what it had been up to that point. It had been conquered by the Spanish. And that's why half of California is still in Mexico. We're like North Korea. It's, it's designed in order to <laughs> suppress us. You and know? you have, that's why in California, you have like the Hearst Castle and you go, have you ever been there? And it's like obviously oh, yeah. way older. They've added stuff to it. But when you look at the the initial castle structure, like there's no way that is what they're saying it is. Well, there's a lot of interesting stuff. So I have an uncle who was a tour guide at, at Hearst Castle. And so I've been there a number of times. They do have things from all over the world because during, so Phoebe Hearst, his mother. Now we can get into Phoebe Hearst. I knew I was going to have to bring her up eventually. Um, she, <laughs> she, she uh, was the one to bring Baha'i to the West. And Baha'i is this weird UN Jedi theosophic religion that you know is, is very, very controlling of the of the world. When they have uh, witch doctors and uh, tribal kings interacting in these ICC courts, they'll bring in as with the ambassadors the the baha'i to try to to maneuver him it's a very weird dune like world that we're living in now and she thought that the baha'i were very fascinating because this guy from sufi backgrounds of iran who was trying to um marry the concepts that were maybe sufic about islam to judo judeo-christianity and and hellenism and and the things that were popular in the philosophical courts of england at the time i mean she spread this entire thing and lived happily ever after until she died in 1919 of the great influenza like a year later but because of the 1907 banking collapse 
they could go around the world and buy stuff. And buy, this is what he did also in 1929, go around the world and buy stuff for pennies on the pound. So there are a lot of things in the castle that are, you know, like the Sumerian cat uh, beset um, Sphinx statues and everything. But there are a lot of things that were done because he brought Italian p- painters to paint his ceilings and things. Uh, part of the castle also was there's a woman who's an architect uh, who did a lot of warehouse buildings. And so the entire in- inlay of the ceiling, you have wires hanging down with wood so that if there's ever an earthquake or anything like that, the wood just kind of shakes a little bit, but it's hanging about, a, about three feet of wire between the ceiling. So there, on one hand, it is a very ancient castle that's been designed and it has a lot of pieces from around the world. It's is the Babylon Disney castle. He's taking, yeah. But on another hand, he did have a lot of very modern infrastructure done to the place because it was in complete chaos and disrepair. Um, you could say, though, he knew where things were. Hearst and his father did. His father was known, like, in the Back to the Future way of being super lucky. You know, oh, this guy decided to be a silver miner. You know, he was in California, couldn't find any gold, put all of his money into going to Nevada looking for silver. We're talking, like, you know, like 500 cows, hired 10, 100 men, you know, 1,000 men or something, and and just happened to luck out. He just happened, the mountain he went to just really did have all that silver in it. So, you know, these kinds of guys who are um, diviners, well-witcher diviners um, and, and Freemasons and like uh, J- J- Jacob, uh, Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith similarly was, that was his entire life was he knew where he could find wells or find metals underground. So this is a, a skill that was held by certain people. And then they stopped going for hire because they could prospect themselves finally in, in a land where the, the land was being stolen by everyone. So it was possible for foundlings to, to, to refine the empire. But Hearst Castle, I think also the other thing that's important about it is it became his zoo, his safari, his reset. He was bringing animals from all over the world. There were lions running around there. You know, his, his thought was that California would be the new Atlantis just as uh, Bacon had said. And, and he was also associated with the Rosicrucians. Even though his mom was super into Baha'i, he, you know, he ended up into the Rosicrucians. Wow. Yeah, you had like the same, you had a lot of those like barons of the 1800s, 1900s. They all seem to have this really interesting story like Carnegie. Supposedly, like he was already building his fortune at like 16 years old and just came out of nowhere. It's really interesting. Came uh, out I mean, of nowhere. Well, yeah, the foundling thing. So yeah. again, with anybody who's, you've got a lot of these, this is that the, the way America works is you create the self-made man ideology. Yeah. And now, you know, it's very clear every time you look into somebody like, oh, well, George Bush, George yeah. W. Bush's dad was president. Wait a second. You know, Americans don't, it's, it, but at the same time, the idea that the, um, it, that Millie Vanilli lip synced is not that weird anymore. I mean, Americans are so used to everything being a lie that it's okay for most Americans that no one's really a self-made man. But at the time, there really were some foundlings. Again, their fathers were probably, they're probably from these royal lines. And this is a big thing with the foundlings is they would say, we need to get a bunch of these kids, 30,000 from New York. And like, this is like the pound, you know, they would pick them up off the street because there was literally more homeless children in New York at the time than there were adults. It just in general, anywhere in New York. And so they took these children and they put them on boats to Argentina. And they took children from Argentina and brought them up to New York. They took kids from Russia, brought them to Canada. They took kids from Canada, brought them to Russia. And the, the churches were doing this 
part of the the research I found shows that they thought that this is early um, inbreeding prevention. They're thinking that these communities are going to be too close. Diseases are going to spread. Commonalities are going to inflict. But that this way we can clean up the population. So they were bringing people that were you know, the royal um, bastards of France and thanks to Canada and to New York. And a number of these guys, again, they were they were tough. You know, Carnegie was a tough guy and he would love to get into fist fights and they would they would bet instead of they would bet cards, but he would also bet um, you know stocks and 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 uh, boat rides and things like that in fist fights. So he's a very strong guy. And that was that generation. They built an entire generation of these fierce, tough, uh, and we think of the old West, but really the old West didn't really exist that way. The old West exists in the sense that you had these train companies that ran these districts, these circuits, and they controlled these zones. And in between the zones, you'd have these towns that would start to um, be managed by these, you know, sheriff dictators, which is a medieval concept. So we're, you know, we're clearly just continuing on that same thing. But Carnegie, um, his son and him going around America, finding castles and saying this was, you know, his, I think it's his son or is his grandson, built one of the biggest castles in Georgia and another one in South Carolina. And they are, you know, they, they look like they're better than anything in Versailles. Yeah, they built like hundreds of them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, they built is a weird thing to say because we don't see any pictures of that. Yeah, we, yeah, do yeah. See, we do see pictures of the I'm buildings. talking the wiki, the, the wiki narrative we get on Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of funny because you'd think if you showed up and you found a castle, you could keep it. But maybe not. Maybe that's not how that worked. You know? And so he ended up hiring infrastructure. And they did. They really did they fix these things up. They painted them. They got their slaves in, their Irish slaves that they paid as little as possible to paint these buildings. And built entire serfdoms around their kingdoms. And this is you know, a complete remerger of the uh, the surf era, but America was really America was really careful. I think Hamilton was the one to really say we have to be very careful about allowing these surf kingdoms to arise. And you see in the propaganda today, like James Bond, who's the bad guy? Well, the bad guy is anybody who can afford to ha have an idea and commit to his idea. You know, if, if he's poor, he could be crazy. He wouldn't be able to do anything. But if he's a rich guy, it's bad. So. That Brezhnevinsky idea of the rich should not be allowed to be so rich and the poor should not be allowed to be so poor is equalized. You know, it's made it very difficult for these for new wealth to emerge in America. And so it's stuck with these very specific found foundling lines where they supposedly aren't tracing back to their nobility. But when you start to look into it, you're like, oh, wait, Rockefeller's from the House of Orange. Interesting. You know, things like that start to emerge. And if you want to find a feudal system, look no further than the Federal Reserve System. So um, if uh, as an astute uh, student of uh, repeating history, what's your prognosis for the near future reset? So, I mean, looking at Davos and what Klaus Schwab has said about uh, Atlanticism and Tartarianism, we are on the verge, of course, and we've known this for decades, that 2030 was supposed to be some sort of magic marker. The Masons talk about 2076 as being the next goal. 2012 was the last one. 2076 is the next one. They do generational goals. So we're, we're likely to see a full transition by 2076. I think 2030 will be uh, some people thought 2021, 20, you look at some of the sci-fi movies and they started to predict that in the 2020s, 
uh, Star Trek, for instance, be, it really begins its dystopia uh, and, and the, the, the crash, the crises begins in the 2020s. So, I mean, the predictive programming is there for this, gener- for this decade. But even just looking at what's going on with the, the war right now, it's not going to be a nuclear uh, holocaust. You know, the whole thing, what we're going to see is what we've been hearing, uh, increases of prices, a depletion of wealth. Um, a consolidation of the middle class into the new proletariat. This is going to take 10 years. You can't do it quicker than that. A lot of people are already done. That's not, I mean, that's why I think so many people are like, just get it over with. But there are still people that own houses. There are still um, the 10%. And the 10% are the the group that they're, they're targeting now because they're the only ones left that have any sort of manipulative control if you own a house you know they're going to take it from you and that's going to start to happen in the next you know california you're already seeing that they're, they're putting up these things how could someone own a house in this town that's crazy they should be renting like everybody else i mean it's not going to take very long for us to get to that point but the, the beauty of it is once we're completely poor once we have nothing klaus schwab says we'll be happy and what i, I think he means by that is <laughs> That because they will own everything, we'll have access to free energy. I mean, at least gratuitous amounts of uh, food to keep us from starving if we work could could come back. We won't see the same sorts of things that we had uh, enticing us towards the reset, though. These ideas of a new razor that gets dull every day, a new phone that's a razor that gets replaced, a, a new car. These kinds of things are gone. I think that's already over with. Yeah, I think... I think they're trying to, re- they know that the uh, resets come and I think they're trying to race to get everybody into a, some simulated reality in this like metaverse so that um, the physicality of materialism isn't even a thing anymore. And people will be happy just living in like a fake, a fake pseudo digital realm. Um, and meanwhile, literally the matrix, like having a tube, just bringing in your basic nutrients into your body while you're living in like a, a digital, you know, fantasy world. I mean, there's, there's also like the transhuman, <laughs> I mean, yes, but tra- I mean, there's all, I think the thing is that, you know, they, they say you're going to eat bugs and live in a box and be happy. Well, if I was a Cajun and I ate nothing but shrimp and squid and lived in a little box, I'd be happy. So I don't, I don't see that as the real, <laughs> that's not the terror there. The, the, the terror is the, la- the, the loss of right. And I, I see right, not plural, because I only really believe in the Hobbesian right of trying <laughs> to not submit until you die. And that's my right. I have a right to try not to submit. And I will have that right up until Neuralink or something takes it away. And this is where transhumanism is scary because, you know, I love the idea of giving kids an extra limb if he's lost his arm or, you know, extending um, the memories of someone who's going to get Alzheimer's. I love the idea of transhumanism to the extent of uh, bettering a human life. But once it becomes post-humanism, which is not that far into the, <laughs> into the trip, then instantly you can see it's not always better. Now we, we talk about uplifting. But with Tartarian technology, you could probably grow that limb back and you could do things where you have psychic rebalancing of your memory. So going back to what Bear and I talk about, the true sciences, the analog right. organic sciences. Right, and that's and so then you look at, um, but you also look at the idea of Atlantis. There's that ancient story of, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the world of Atlantis, I think it's um, Robert Anton Wilson tells this story in the Illuminatus trilogy that there was all of these different kinds of humans and a lot of them were covered in fur, which yeah. is, if you look at- They were the doing castle, hybridization. The Amelius group yeah. was supposedly doing hybridization. That was what led to the fall of Atlantis and they were big into eugenics that, and all these the, things. The, the castle of Hearst has these pictures of the wild man 
in the wild men covered in fur. And it's, it's an analogy to that because it's something the, the Templar period, the Son of Ronan, it talks about as well. Um, but the that other could also was, be Bigfoot. Yeah, and Bigfoot, another kind of hominid. So the, an, another kind of hominid at the same time as us. A Bigfoot really just represents the idea that we're not the only hominid that's alive right now. We're not in some long line of hominids, but there's a web of gene flow of hominids that are simultaneous. And it could have died out even by now and still have existed in our life in our in our human time if that were the case so for people that are skeptical but the idea that the ideology of atlantis was different than tartaria in the sense that that atlantis said do what you can do like if you can do like so um what's the what is the law again do what thou wilt i think that's that's the idea that the the law was do what thou wilt and somebody created in the furry people world, a bald faced man, cause it was funny and just thought it looked cool. And that was the first of the bald faced men and that they were mocked, but they were brilliant. And that the scientists trained them all their lives. And eventually he's at some sort of a Atlantis symposium. And they're all talking about how great their flying five ass monkeys are. And they're saying how great Atlantis is. <laughs> and he says, you know, yeah, do what thou wilt. And we've done it. Isn't it great. And then the bald faced monkey man says, do what thou wilt is that really so good i don't know if it is i kind of kind of think that that's i'm the i resemble that remark i'm the consequence of that action and it hasn't made my life better i have a new idea i think we should if anything we think is right to do we ought to do it and if anything seems like it would be wrong to do we ought not to do it and this is it's kind of a funny story but that idea that right and wrong um, is a new concept learned from do what thou wilt is a very child psychology now. I mean, that's kind of how humans work. And it makes a certain amount of sense that we, we went through this period and we, we hear about it, that there's these flying, crazy genetic um, monsters that exist that, I mean, even today, how many of the species that we've domesticated would be able to make it if we weren't here to keep them domesticated? They would have to evolve one way or another or, or go extinct. So, we're, we're seeing examples of that as well, that, that we might have built into our civilization so many dangerous things in our former reset of technogynism that those weather systems and those uh, feedback loops are still affecting us today. And it, it's important for us to be very careful. I mean, we look at Russia, there's a lake they completely drained because they, they diverted 10% of the lake and every year it wouldn't rain into the lake anymore. So eventually it just dried up after 40 years, a, a thousands of year old lake. This is the kind of feedback loop we have to be very careful of. And we're looking around and seeing, I mean, very, very obviously, the best real estate in the world is going to be that mega Chad. The Sahara will very quickly become the next major place to be, followed by Antarctica, which is why they have so many you know, rules about anyone being able to go there except for the elite. So we're, we're very much on the edge of this reset. And the reset is going to be on every level. It'll be you know, day after tomorrow. The environment will shift. Civilization will shift. The, the rules will shift, the ideology, the beliefs will shift, history will shift. Likely, if AI is involved, language will be replaced with a new language. And we, we talk about how Havelock gave us, you know, Havelock talked about Hellenistic concepts and increased the capacity of cognitive thought of, of humanity. We went from fire, danger, to um, complexity, uh, subtlety, to these ideas that, that weren't that weren't natural before and that were literally uplifted just by language. It's a wet wire programming. If, if technology does this to us, there's a show called raised by wolves where AI is raising humans because they've killed themselves off. Basically we could very easily see in a couple of generations, something very different emerge from humanity. That's, that's 
transhumanist in a sense, but biologically is based on the same wet wire programming. So the reset could be completely, or it could go worse. And this is the main concern. We very seldom uplift animals. I've never seen animals trained to, I mean, we, we do, we've got monkeys that can fly planes. That's kind of impressive. Good job, military. And the, and the dolphins being used for echolocation, also military. So militarization is the closest, but they're still just pets, you know? And it seems like if we're doing that and we're building AI, aren't we worried that AI will just do what it, what we do? Are, is AI going to help us uplift? Maybe not. Maybe we'll end up with as pets as like, as most people fear. Well, I think the, the majority of uh, people on this planet are somebody else's pet at this point already. And I think the most vulnerable creature class are people. People are pretty helpless right now. It's, it, it's sad. You know, it's one of the things we do here at Alpha Vedic. We're just trying to teach people how to grow food again, how to, how to make their own medicine, how to tap into their potential. So, um, you know, there's an old saying in uh, anthroposophical circles that uh, went into more advanced teachings after that. And they, they, the mantra is for those who will be left. And, um, you know, the, the depopulation agenda is uh, key, very key. And, uh, you know, you can look at it as a bunch of monsters trying to kill a lot of uh, people. But then on the other hand, it's a service I think they're providing for the people that don't want to be here in the first place. You know, and, and it's obvious by a lot of people's actions that they do not want the skill sets. They don't want the knowledge. Uh, they just want to be put to sleep. So I think um, I think that's pretty much what we're looking at right now. And we're going to see probably a few billion people leave the planet in the, in the not too distant future. But anyway, any final thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? I mean, that, that kind of sums it up, I, but um, maybe in the more optimist light, I would say that because there are so many people like yourself and that we're, we are, there are people that care and are trying to learn how to grow food and that food mm -hmm. can grow. It's amazing that there's such a simple solution to all of this. I think that's the thing that people keep forgetting. The, the problem is really complicated. It, it's intricate anyway. I mean, but the solution's not, the solution is very simple. It's just to do it yourself and to do it with your friends and building community, if you don't build community, if you don't build your village, you're going to end up in the big city. And it's, it's not a very kind world out there. Nature itself is changing. That's the big thing with technogayanism is that they're going to say that nature should, the wind should flow the other way. The sun should come from the other angle. I mean, they, all of these things are going to change. And all of the things we hold on to, and for even me talking about history and things, this is today's perspective of yesterday which is a concept so so much of it really does come down to what exists right now we have access to plant medicine we have access to maca we can we can start to clean it up a little bit and you know growing quinoa I, I, one of the huge things that i saw happen in my lifetime was uh, no one knew about quinoa and all of a sudden in france they're growing it and so it's a huge to me that's a big deal that the world is starting to um quinoa was taken away from us because the spanish were afraid it was going to replace the host in the eucharist you know we're really changing as a society mm -hmm. it's important wow. to understand that and that we're you know that it's the, that's so absurd to even think that that was a problem at one point that's that's beautiful that we're we're moving so far beyond that and becoming more empathic and more aware of each other so well, yeah i think 
I think you're, you know, the, the thing that we often lose track of easily when we get into these um, discussions, it's all still materialism we're talking about. And of course, there's a higher spiritual plane and these other planes of existence that are really what we're rediscovering. And we didn't really get to even touch into the Mandela effect because you did tease that. And we're going to have to have you back on. We've gone over two I can, hours. I can, and I can do I can do it in 10 seconds really quick. It's worth it, actually. This was one okay. that made me think it's important. <laughs> was ben, was Berenstein Bears all my life. Then Berenstein. Got to look into it. Look into it a little oh. bit. The guy, the Stan Berenstein Jr., the son of the writer, says it's always been Berenstein. It's always been Berenstein because in the uh, 13th or 12th century, there was a war. There was a war between the Bohemians and this group called the Tartars. And when the Tartars won that war, the names changed in the town. Now, if the German Bohemians had won, it would have been Stein. But since the Stani, uh, you know, Tartarians won, Berenstein became the name. And so it's always been Berenstein. And so I always loved that. I thought that was just too Wow. Weird. <laughs> That's a great little antecedent there. Wow. Amazing. So um, this has been such a great chat. And for those, you know, that are just tripping down this lane um, and want to know more, Andreas, I know you have a whole project uh, uh, based around this. Um, where is the best places for people to find you? If you go to andreas.me or exertus.com, you can find my YouTube, my Odyssey, my Rumble, my Instagram, my SoundCloud, my et cetera, et cetera. And I do all kinds of stuff. A lot of this, you said earlier, it's, it's some of it's Tartaria, but I do have a really, I have an interesting interview with Alexander Dugan, who's the mm-hmm. Putin's rescue and political advisor to Russia and Alexander yeah. War. I, and I, basically hundreds of videos. My goal is if you have a family member that you've been trying to communicate anything about anything to them about i have a video on that subject so figure out and you probably have a lot of friends that you want to talk to about something figure out what you want to talk to them about and there's about 300 videos on that subject on my channel ah that's that's pretty broad okay man andreas (laughs) you're you're awesome and uh you're a force uh definitely and we definitely want to have you back on because there's so much more i wanted to talk to you about and thanks for being with us today Definitely. I love being here. I love you guys. I love what you're doing. I'm really excited about what you guys are up to. I can't wait to see more of the AlphaCast. This is great. So Yeah. And you're if you're ever up oh. our way, we're up on the border of California, Oregon, on the great state in the great state of Jefferson here. I, I got to come. There's, you guys are close to the fossil uh, forest and petrified. There's a lot. There's a lot up there. I got to go check out. Oh, yeah. And uh, the Caves Monument, which is really interesting up here, the, or the Caves National Park in Oregon. Um, I was some- actually right at those caves. So my vice special, and again, at, as evil as they are, they have figured out how to, it's like Darth, It's like the Death Star. They have people working for people working for people, and they go on Craigslist and Facebook and hire people. So it was kind of like being Obi-Wan manipulating through the Death Star. They didn't, nobody knew anybody. It was amazing. I was amazed what I got away with. But we went and did a hollow earth research, and we went to the caves in Oregon and Lassen. And uh, you, yeah, I think you'd be surprised. It's pretty awesome. So check it out. That's so trippy. I was just bringing that up with my kids. We were driving by. I'm like, I want to go back there because I want I for that specific purpose. That's only like an hour from our house. It's beautiful there. And, you know, basically my conclusion is, yes, there are tunnels and caves, but there's also this kind of Californian etch-a-sketch in between. So there is a a shift between the disconnects things. So it's difficult to find your way to these tunnels, but they can be accessed and they can be, uh, I, I definitely believe it's there. 
Yeah. Well, this has been amazing. For those who uh, want to catch this on the replay, yes, this is, goes out as a podcast. It'll be available as an audio podcast everywhere. Uh, it, it'll also be on our website and replaying on Odyssey, besovereign.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, we maybe we'll throw this up on Loosh Tube. We'll see. Uh, we didn't really say any too many trigger words. So I'm I think really, we, I think we could probably put it on YouTube in two weeks when they calm down about it. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. This oh, is they're, amazing. They're going amazing. back and taking off stuff that we did two years ago. Yeah, see, for YouTube, I've gotten a strike, and it was literally for something someone else did that I was promoting because I knew that it needed to be heard. For the most part, I'm pretty good at saying things just the right way because they educated me in that school where two plus two can equal four between the hours of nine to five. But yeah, you got to be really <laughs> careful. They don't like it when we talk. Uh, amazing. Well, hey, thanks so much again, Andreas, for being on here. If you guys like this, give us a thumbs up. Please share it uh, with your friends and family. Go join us on Odyssey. Uh, we had a great chat on there today because we weren't on YouTube today. So odyssey.com forward slash at Alpha Vedic. And then, of course, on Be Sovereign, which is uh, Sayer G's platform. He's really helping us uh, go big on that. So please go support Be Sovereign. Uh, dot com and uh, we love you we'll see you next week uh, i can't wait bear we we're going to be doing a whole alpha cast on the anastasia books on the uh, ringing cedars talk oh, about yeah yeah that'd be great with the foundation head the people that are like head of the foundation in the united states with wesley and his buddy um blanking on his name but that's going to be a, an amazing one i'm rereading the books right now i'm on i'm almost done with book one right now i fell in love with anastasia again and talk about tartaria stuff Wow, we got to come back and maybe talk to you about this because she goes deep into like the real science of who we are as living men and women connected to Mother Nature. So um, anyways, been such a pleasure. Uh, Andreas, thanks again for joining us today, man. One of my favorite shows we've done and uh, we hope to have you on again. We will have you on again. And uh, everyone, thanks so much. Have a beautiful day. Remember to get outside, get your feet in, feet in the soil, go plant something, go on, a, go on a hike. Mother Nature is our best teacher and uh, show her some love. We'll see you guys next week. Cheers.